0: You are listening to LP Uncovered, a music podcast hosted by myself, Laura Plant. On this episode, I'm joined by a wonderful American singer, songwriter and filmmaker, Ben Hosey, from the band Bodega. The band consists of Ben, Nikki, Adam, Ty and Dan, and Bodega released its debut full-length album, Endless Scroll, back in 2018. In March this year, they released their second album, The Fantastic Broken Equipment, inspired by a book club. The album's 12 songs are set in present-day New York City, packing in references to contemporary issues of algorithmic targeting, media gentrification, and the band itself. So let's uncover Bodega's brilliant new album, Broken Equipment. Well, I'm so excited to have on LP Uncovered this week to talk about his brand new album with the brilliant Bodega, Ben Hosey. Hello. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you?
1: Very good. Just having a, kind of a lazy uh, afternoon here in, in Brooklyn.
0: Nice, nice. How's your day been going so far? Is it nice weather there this time of year?
1: Yeah, it's incredible. I've been playing a lot of basketball this summer. There's a court like right around the corner, so I was just there.
0: <laughs> oh, handy. Nice. Well, hopefully you're not too tired then to chat through the album. Oh, no. Well, I've got to say congrats on, on the band's second album, The Brilliant Broken Equipment. And um, you must be so excited or so happy with the response. And you've not long come back from the UK, right? How was it? How were the shows? How were us Brits?
1: Oh, we love playing in England. I don't have to tell you this. There's just a great culture of rock,
2: kind mm.
1: A lot of our influences are sort of British. We're sort of an Anglophile band in many ways. It's always fun to go there. Yeah, we had a great time. It was a long tour. It was like two months almost.
0: Yeah, I was gutted that I um, couldn't come down. But what were some of your show highlights? I know you did quite a few shows in Brighton.
1: Yeah, those Brighton ones were good. I think the best uh, the best shows of the tour for me were Leeds. I was at Ooh, the nice. And Manchester was great now we have enough material that we play a very different show every night so that's cool you know uh, like in Glasgow or or Brighton in Brighton we played three shows in the same venue and try to make each one very different so the challenge of doing that's really fun
0: wow do you normally have a different set list for different shows or does it really vary yeah yeah totally
1: varies Wow, Uh, just I guess this comes from me being a fan where when I go see a band and if there's a band I really love and you know, I can catch two of their shows on the tour. But then they play the exact same show and they might even have the same stage banter. Yeah. yeah. It's, like a, it's almost like a Broadway show. It's perfectly programmed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to diss anybody for doing that, but to me, it's not very exciting. <laughs> like, so <laughs> so I, I, I take pride in having our band be very spontaneous and different every time. You know?
0: Yeah, exactly. And talking of like music as influence, I've read that music of your youth kind of influenced this album. Can yeah. you kind of go into a little bit more detail about which bands?
1: Yeah, I guess on the B side of the record in particular, there's sort of a classic rock influence. Like for me, that's just 60s Beatles and Bob Dylan, which maybe people can't hear. It's not like, you know, we don't sound like a folk blues band or whatever, but uh, the songwriting, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting in more in touch with sort of melodic pop rock kind of thing that Deep Down is, my, I think, my favorite kind of music. And playing the the creative game of how to, how to bring in those influences while still sounding like us and still being a relatively tough band, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and you've really managed to capture that. I mentioned it quite a lot on some of the uh, songs I've noted down, in particular, kind of the comparison between Endless Scroll and this album. There does seem to be a bit more of a... A melodic, I suppose, in a lot of your songs. How was it in comparison to *Endless Scroll*? Putting this putting this album together because I know it was all inspired by a Book Club.
1: Yeah, oh, uh, well, really, night and day. Because *Endless Scroll* was, you know, all those songs were not written to be on one album together. They were just songs written in, I guess, a burst of inspiration, with the goal of basically just playing in front of fifty of our friends and really blowing their minds. So those songs have like a really direct simplicity to them. We're in a small bar, rock club, or whatever. They're meant to be immediately understood in like ten seconds, you know, uh, both sort of intellectually and musically and rhythmically. Where and and, and that record was like the the result of uh, the five of us at the time playing live all the time. We playing like two times a week for like two years or something. So we got wow. And then, so that record is more or less just the way we sounded live. Uh, I think we did it all in like two or three days or something. Um, whereas, you know, the, the, the better you get at playing music and being in a band, you get, uh, you want to challenge yourself. So Broken Equipment was way more work, fun work. But, you know, we wrote many, many songs. We tried to experiment with different types of song forms. And because a lot of it was written during the pandemic, Unfortunately, a lot of it wasn't written or tested in front of an audience. It was all, you know, done amongst ourselves. So that's a very different kind of experience. But yeah, it was like big goals for me was to make the record, A, more melodic, B, more dense. Uh, I think if you really sit down with the lyric sheet, I think there's a, there's a lot uh, of rewards you could get from it, from this new one. Yeah, I don't know. Just do do something different, I guess.
0: Do You talk about the lyrics, and I saw... Um from the band you even put out a video on how to use the lyrics from the album because it's is a map on the back or a poster on one side and yeah yeah
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah. so cool so cool I love that and um the artwork and stuff I always talk about artwork what was the inspiration behind that one and I suppose that that's linking with the whole concept of broken equipment and Martin Heidegger I hope I've said that right and um yeah for someone like myself that probably I'm not as aware on his work how that kind of informed the title and the artwork
1: okay yeah it's a good question so yeah we have this philosophy club that we were all kind of inspired by and Heidegger can kind of be split up into two periods there's this early period where I guess he wrote um, being in time which is kind of like an attack on traditional metaphysics I don't <laughs> I don't need to go into it too much but it's more about uh, Getting rid of mind-body dualism, which is anyone who is is vaguely familiar with Christianity understands that. We have a soul, we have a body. He was sort of against that. that There's this one thing, being, and our mind is influenced by our body. Our body is influenced by our mind. They're really the same thing, really. So he kind of wanted to start over and get rid of all these sort of like unproved dogmas of Western Mm -hmm. philosophy. We were really interested in later Heidegger, where he talks about technology he has a, a, a essay concerning technology and one concerning art, particularly the one about art kind of really inspired us. I, I, I find the way he talks about art is very poetic where he talks about how it functions like broken equipment. He uses that term. That's what we stole that from him where when something is broken, like a tool, it reveals its presence to you. So an example I use all the time is wifi, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm never aware of what Wi-Fi even is, or that it's it's on in my house until it goes down. But when it goes down and I'm not able to chat or use my email or whatever, then I then all of a sudden Wi-Fi is brought to my consciousness. And I'm thinking about it. So we we're thinking about that, and he says art is like that. It's uh, what what it does is it sort of reveals things that you would take for granted, like a poem does that or a painting does that. Uh, it might make you think about things that you experience every day, but you know, for evolutionary reasons is in the very back of your mind. <laughs> um, I don't know. I like that idea. And like just running with it, the phrase is evocative. I mean, it sounds like we recorded it on maybe like broken guitars or cruddy equipment, but also it kind of means that I think you think politically or sociologically, not that this is necessarily new, but our political systems are very, are revealing themselves to be very broken in many ways. The upside, to that is that everyone is more or less aware of that so you know there's that aspect to the the name as well also I I think it sounds enigmatic it sounds I don't know I just like the phrase but yeah, um, but the actual the actual artwork w- with the teal background and the finger and,
0: yeah, uh, yeah yeah
1: the Nikki the other singer in our band made that I think she was really inspired by what happens on stage when the kind of power play that happens between the audience and the performers on stage when you point at somebody she she had found uh and a lot of our tours they're almost like the spotlights on them and they now have to perform so they'll pretend (laughs) to sing along or they'll be like really exaggerating whereas when they're in the shadows they're not performing Mm. with sort of like there's sort of a fascism about that where the people on the stage can sort of like command the audience what to do Uh, So she created this, this finger that we have, that's a real life-size sculpture that was going to be like the sixth member of the band that we would tour with. And it would like point at people as this weird sculpture on stage to sort of um, reveal this dynamic between the audience and uh, band members. But due to technological issues and the size of our van, (laughs) we didn't take it on tour, but she put it on the
0: cover. Couldn't get a passport for it.
1: Yeah, it doesn't, you know, I think it's a, it's about, to me, I don't even think she sees it this way, but to me, what it feels like is playing off of, I guess, a lot of our internet consciousness themes on Endless Scroll. To me, that's what life on the internet feels like. There's constantly a finger pointing at you, demanding your attention, and sort of making you feel terrible, whether whether the apps or the algorithms or the other users on the apps are doing that, or you're doing it to yourself. That just feels like what, is, what the experience is like on the internet. So it's predominantly a negative one.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, I wish I was this productive over lockdown because I I didn't do a book club. It sounds like, and you got a, a member out of it. Adam, did you meet through the book club?
1: Yeah, well, I knew him before that, but he was like the leader of our book club. And then, but I, I never knew, uh, you know, he had a desire to be in a direct band. I knew he had, he played bass and he, he had a band, but because he's a professor, I didn't think he'd ever want to yeah. be in a band time but he said i'll give it a go
0: you know so cool uh, what a cool professor yeah yeah so he still goes on tour but then like we'll just come home and do professors. yeah right of
1: course right now on um, guess animal behavior animal
0: minds wow well fascinating and to go through broken equipment track by track obviously you kick off with the brilliant throne um which i've kind of interpreted about like identity and, and consumption and a real collection of sounds that I think sets up the album so well, like the syncopated bass, the guitar, the human play drums, your spoken text raps and melody. Yeah, just, I love it. And what led you to put this song at the beginning of the album to open it all off? Hmm.
1: Well, two things. One, the conceptualness of it, because to me the record is actually sort of a concept record. It isn't in the sense of the wall or Tommy or or, where there's like a plot. Um, But when me and Nikki were writing this batch of songs, we talked about what do we want this record to be about? And one of the big uh, sort of bodega ways of seeing the world is, is understanding that we're sort of programmed. Our thoughts are sort of programmed for us. That doesn't mean we don't have free will.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it means that anything I've experienced throughout my whole life, the records I listened to, the films I've watched, the things I've read, the people I've hung out with, the music culture i participated in has shaped my identity. And so I guess we're at this age where we're saying, what is our identity? Like, who are we, where do we come from, who do we want to be and sort of analyze. So each song is meant to be like exam, uh, examining an external thing that has made us who we are. So whether that's the city we live in, New York, whether that's self-help and advertising with like doers, whether that's my relationship with my mom, the last song, my ex partner romantic partners, all past lovers, all these things have made me who I am. So that was kind of like the friend so throne is sort of like the thesis statement because in many it used to be called just self-portrait in my lyric book. It, it's um I was reading uh Ulysses at the time, the oh. Joyce Ulysses. Yeah. Uh, do you know Ulysses?
0: Yeah, well I did classics at school. So yeah. Oh, wow. But being a while, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs>
1: Do you remember the Proteus chapter where Stephen Daedalus is like walking along the beach?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's like my, it's like my favorite, I don't know, hour of literature that you can have. I love it so much where he's kind of is going through this game in his head. Like, who am I? And he's playing with uh, the two key references he has in his head is Hamlet and Aristotle. And he's talking about Hamlet. He's saying, am I the protagonist or am I the ghost? That kind of goes back to that mind body thing we were talking about the protagonist, the one that acts versus your soul. But also, obviously, Hamlet, the flesh and blood living prince and his dead father or whatever. But, you know, his relation, like thinking about your parents, like what, what do my parents, uh, you know, how much of them is in me and how much am I my own person? Mm. So thrown in many ways, is like me almost covering that Proteus chapter. There's even some direct quotes from it.
0: Right, yeah, yeah,
1: But But applying it to my own self, you know, there's references to other Bodega songs, there's references to films I've made in there. So it, it's kind of a dense song, but it's it's meant to just fly by you, like like how Ulysses is meant to just fly by you. There's conscious, consciousness happening in real time. So that's like the... All that is to say that's the sort of cerebral reason for why you might start a record that way. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day when you're making music. What matters is what sounds good. <laughs> and it was very clear that it was the most sort of kick-ass, blood-pumping song that when you drop the needle on the record or you hit play on your streaming device or whatever, that it just immediately says, all right, this is the world, and you're thrown into it. Like I like that, that term thrown, which is also a Heidegger term. You know, it, it's like the, the that literary concept where you start in the middle of the story. You're just thrown and in, thrust into it. Yeah. That's what life is like. You're just thrown in the middle of, you know, you didn't get to choose where you're born and what your genes are or, mm. or who's around you or what historical moment you're in. You do get to say how you live your life, but you, but you need to recognize your thrownness first.
0: Well, really fascinating. And you obviously mentioned that you're influenced by so many different things around you, film, uh, obviously books, arts, geography, obviously New York is a massive presence in this album and to you guys as a band. From what age do you remember kind of taking everything in and being so absorbed, I suppose, by all these different mediums around you?
1: Oh, wow. You I mean like, when did I have like a creative
0: consciousness? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a better uh, question the way I just phrased it.
1: Wow, that's a, yeah, I, I've never asked that, that's good. Um I don't know i guess it would have been like six or seven maybe wow where i i mean i've had i've always had like a, like maybe an unhealthy neurotic relationship with with art when i when i like something um i become a completist and i need to i need to have ever know everything see everything about it and i'm the kind of person that could never you know read volume two of a series of books before one it would just There's no, there's no way. (laughs) Which is, I think it's, it's kind of unhealthy relationship with art in some ways. Um, But for whatever reason, my mind always worked like that. Like if Mm. I, like if I saw the James Bond movie as a kid, I needed to immediately see the other 18 and know every little thing about them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's not necessarily philosophical or whatever, but I, it's just, I guess, um, I guess a lot of creative people have that compulsion, maybe.
0: And obviously talking about influences, the second song on the album, The Brilliant Doers, which seems to explore our brains and overcharge and how that can actually be like counterproductive and obviously the brilliant lyrics, bitter, harder, fatter, stressed out. Um, what was the writing process behind, like behind on this one?
1: <laughs> uh, it much sillier in many ways. I was uh, going through like a phase of what I'll call like self-improvement, I guess, you know, I'm still going through that phase. You never not go through that phase, but very consciously, I got home from tour and I was like, "All right, I need to get healthy. I need better habits. Um, I need, you know, to be to be more productive in my life." So I was reading a lot of self help, which I'm kind of not ashamed to admit, but it is kind of corny in a way. And one of the, one of the things that I was trying to get better at is uh, expanding my musical palettes. So I was taking classical guitar lessons. Oh wow! Don't be impressed. I was terrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I was coming home from practice one day and I was on the train and I saw an advertisement on the subway and it said, you're too busy crushing your goals being a doer. You don't have time to cook dinner tonight. So order online tonight or something like that. It's like, what a pathetic thing. Like I'm too busy playing capitalism's games that I can't even, I'm so pathetic. I can't even make food for myself. So I have to spend $40 ordering dinner for myself and immediately Um, I guess I was in like a very receptive, uh, mode maybe from that lesson, but I immediately kind of just started rapping in my head and I had almost like, I don't know, two thirds of the lyrics just in my head Wow! I immediately came home and picked up a guitar and came up with that riff. It all happened kind of spontaneously. It was exciting. It's exciting when that happens. And then, uh, but the actual like production and building it out took a lot more time, but yeah, I I guess, uh, we had a lot of discussions in the band that we wanted to do more, hip-hop kind of influenced things where obviously we had done like the post-punk talky vocals in the past but wanted to uh, take it more in a kind of to me it feels like 80s hip-hop like mm-hmm. old school boom bap that kind of thing but done in, in our very way it also kind of has like a new metal flavor to it you know i grew up when uh limb and uh kid rock and lincoln park were the biggest bands on the planet so whether i like it or not that's in my it's in my music. DNA, you know.
0: <laughs> well, you kind of talk about obviously the rapping and, and the spoken words and I've I've heard you describe it like using a mouth as a drum almost, your your lyrics. And how is that playing live and how much energy and yeah, do you have to bring in specifically in songs like Doers?
1: Uh, that's a lot, actually. Like one thing I think most uh, singers know in bands is that you never lose your voice singing on tour. You lose your voice talking. Usually, right. Who's it after the show when you're in a bar and you're like trying to have a conversation with someone? You're speaking louder over the bar music. The next day, your voice is so hoarse you can't even talk. Maybe because you drank too much, or or something too, or maybe. But rapping is the same way. I feel like that's why like rappers are. Uh, historically, not very good live performers. You got to have the whole posse with you to hit, hit all the punchlines. Yeah. Uh, it's just too physically demanding to, to, yeah. to rap that fast. Even rappers, when they're making songs, they don't do the whole song. They, they do their 16 bars at a time, or probably not even that anymore. Some of them do punchlines, punch ends, punch you know. So, yeah, uh, doing songs like that, you got to really, you know, before we do doers, I always drink about half to a full bottle of water so my throat is nice and wet. You know, it's like the Sleeper Mods guy doing that all the time. You know, he's got to chug a whole bottle of water just to be able to do one song. Wow. It's hard to have that much intensity. That's why when, you know, the classic uh, boomer kind of thing about how, oh, these people, rapping doesn't take any skill. Singing, Singing is so much more relaxing to do than rapping. For just from like an athletic standpoint.
0: One well, number three on the album "Territorial Call of the Female," which Nikki leads us brilliantly, and I love the line "Oh baby, pivot your frown." I think it's so good. Um, did she write all this one herself? And if so, yeah. do you remember your like reaction when she first came forward to you with with this idea?
1: Yeah, she wrote all the lyrics and that in the baseline um, herself, definitely. Um, yeah, I think I remember she told me that we were at a party and she was having a really positive conversation with another woman who I will name. But as soon as uh, a guy rolled up and there was an a dynamic of three of them chatting, the girl totally like turned against Nikki and was kind of like this very like almost, uh, you know, biological study of uh, turning against the others to attract mates or whatever. But so I think for her, it became uh, this interesting way of how patriarchy is is often involves women against women and realizing that she had been guilty of it herself. So, I, you know, in the song, I think she's, she's pretty clear to be um, singing from the point of view of someone who's done that a lot in the past and they'll sort of continue to do that. And she's kind of being cheeky and she's asking, you know, to be called out, which is sort of a play on the, I mean, the song is very biological. It has like these, uh, these uh, animal samples. It's an it's a owl. Oh. That, uh, I'm playing on my sampler, meant to compare us uh, to animals in a way. I mean, cool. we are, sapiens are animals, but yeah.
0: And and so when she brought that song to you, do you remember, like, was it, did she bring just the lyrics and then you c- came in with the melody or was it literally she kind of had the whole thing there ready to go?
1: She had the lyrics and the melody and the, uh, the bass line, the the main one, the A bass line, the doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo um and then i just i i think i wrote the uh the verse baseline and she then did her melody on top of it it was so says like 95 percent her and then you know i just kind of like and i think that's what a good songwriting partner is is they just you know they fill in the gaps like oh like you have a great song but you're missing a bridge let me fill in the gap for you, mm-hmm. you know, for her a lot of times with me it's um she'll point out things that she thinks are sort of like inconsistent with my own views maybe because she knows me so well or maybe parts where she thinks I'm being a little too cute or something or oh, I don't you know this one line irritates me or whatever it's good to have someone that you trust and then you know it is painful often to get that kind of advice but then (laughs) after you reflect on you're like all right I'll I'll change that line fine
0: (laughs) (laughs) and you guys do compliment each other so so well Number four on the album, NYC, Disambiguation, and I love the introduction, the drums and the guitar and then your vocals. And again, the lyrics are sung with very much a melodic turn and and over the electric guitars, um, which ends up feeling quite joyous, which kind of I find really interesting against the lyrics themselves and kind of what you're going into. How is it finding that balance between the melody and the lyrics, especially in this one?
1: It's a tricky one, actually. Because I did a lot of research for this one. I like read uh, some books about the history of New York. I guess because what was happening is when we were going on tour, for better or worse, we become sort of ambassadors for what New Yorkness means. Yeah. yeah. People ask us that wherever we go, whether it's in uh, Singapore or London. <laughs> like, oh, what does it mean to, to make art in New York? So I thought, well, I better come up with a, a good answer. Let me learn a, a bit about New York. And I guess the conclusion of the song is that sort of the, if you want to explain New York from, you obviously can't explain anything from one point of view, but the way I came to understand it, my relationship to it, is it's sort of, it's a financial hub and an artistic hub, and those things are so intertwined. So sort of the sins of the city are intertwined with its thriving culture as well. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the city. It was, it was literally a slate port when it was founded. So, you know, it's also like – I mean, it's like a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing because you come across people who are like, oh, you're not real New York. You've only lived here 15 years. I was born and raised here. Or you've only lived in Bushwick for 15 years, whereas this community has been here for 30 years. But Bushwick was originally a polo ground for rich people, rich playboys from Manhattan to come out and play polo. And a bunch of mansions were out here and stuff like that. So, I don't know. That that doesn't mean – you know, any of the recent processes of, of gentrification are beyond critique. Not by any means am I saying that, but I don't know. I find it useful to think about things historically in that way. But anyway, so I wrote the lyrics really fast after reading all these books. So once you have gestated all these ideas in your mind, the, the thinking is the hard work, but the actual song it shouldn't be too hard. But then my original melody was so melodic. Uh, it almost reminded me of a Broadway song. Oh, wow. kind of like, it was like something from Hamlet. It was like a, like ah. an alternative hamilton or something.
0: I was about to say yeah yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought when you thought of um um yeah west end or that came to mind. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um which I guess I don't know maybe I had done that subconsciously or something. Uh, but I like that di- I like that dichotomy. I think our band is at its best when it's sort of there's an irony at play. It doers is like that where from one point of view it is a song that you could listen to while on the treadmill being like I'm a doer I'm crushing it today. But also it's extremely critical, that mindset. It's both simultaneously. Uh, so I think like the New York melody could be like an anthem for the resilience of New Yorkers. But if you actually look at what I'm saying, it's like, oh, we don't want any part of that, you know? <laughs> it's complicated. So yeah, I guess it was tweaking the melody to get it to be super catchy, but not annoyingly Broadway. You know, mm-hmm.
0: And that's definitely something that you've captured on a lot of the songs on the album. <laughs> Even more so in number five, Statuette and the Console, which I know you're probably are probably sick and tired of. People keep talking and asking the questions, but um, I know that Nikki wrote the song and then vocally he has recorded it in nine different languages. and yeah. I'm not going to make you go through all of them. But um, yeah, I suppose what was her reasoning behind that? Is, I love it. It's such a cool idea and concept and very much in keeping with the the idea behind the song.
1: Yeah, I think I think it had to do with, uh sort of the theme of the song is recognizing that when you reject certain ideologies for her i think it was very obviously christianity to start off with yeah i'm not a christian this is something that's been slammed down my throat in america but i don't want any part of it but then realizing okay so what do i have if i if i don't have this ideology she recognizes very cheekily in the song that she still lives by her own platitudes everyone does so in that spirit, I guess, uh, of wanting to to uh, figure out, so if, if you're rejecting a dominant ideology, what is your own, what are your own beliefs? She wanted to step outside, you know, her own dominant thinking, which is English, of course, and try to perform in uh, as many different languages as possible. It's almost a sort of con- conceptual exercise. Then rock and pop for sort of imperialist and colonialist reasons and sort of historical accidents is probably you know it's an English phenomenon um you know even even the the BTS guys they sing in English a lot yeah because obviously that that's going to get them the most money um uh, so she's wanted uh, cool. to find that and, and to, to try to sing in other languages
0: and I saw in an interview that she's saying that uh, she was going to Meet the lady that helped her with the Greek part in Brighton, and she was coming oh, to the yeah. show. Did that happen, to, how did that pan out?
1: You know, it's funny. I I can't remember if she actually met the real person, but I do remember there was someone in the crowd. She did the Greek version, and then the person, someone in the crowd, was saying, "Oh, is that you?" And they were like, "It was me." And then she found out that wasn't that. It was just like someone at the show <laughs> who was, like, was like, "I'm Greek." And they miss they misheard.
0: Oh, got you.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. We did. We've met so many of the people who translated the song. Like some, some of them are good friends um, or or peers in the in our musical world. Like Juan Waters did the Spanish one. Oh, uh, wow. but
0: guys, um, so we don't know. We're not sure. She. We think maybe she potentially met her. But.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd have to ask her honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so many things happen on tour. I forget. honestly <laughs> <laughs>
0: So number six on the album C-I-R-P. I love the riffs and the guitar on this one in particular. And um, What came first, the lyrics or the music?
1: Um, The music on that one. But it was sort of like piecemeal. I just was playing around with this idea, this bass line. I made a loop. I was going to try to make a sort of like gridded hip-hop style arrangement where it's mostly like a loop, but then new layers come in. and. Um, it was originally called Co- Cops at Alamo Draft House. I don't know if you know. Say that again. Cops at Alamo Draft
0: House. <laughs> what does that mean?
1: So there's a theater um, in Austin, Texas called the Alamo Draft House. You know, like, like remember the Alamo? Um, okay. Got you. David Crockett and all that. So there's a, but it's a theater chain. It's one of the, I don't know if you ever been to these. I don't know how big they are in England, but you can watch the movie and order food and have dinner as well. So they'll. Right. You know, they'll bring you out
0: beer and... Um, oh, we need you know. that. I don't think we've got that.
1: It's pretty nice. It's, uh, depending on how, what a snob you are, do you, you think movies should be separate from dinner or not? I personally think it's cool to have some chips and a beer when you're watching a movie. But um, it's become a chain. So there's one in Brooklyn now too. Oh, cool. But I was there at one point and they are very, very against people talking and texting during the movie which is good i'm not against that but they have all these ads that say like if anyone is texting like don't uh say anything to them report them and they'll be ejected or whatever which i found sort of uh totalitarian and disturbing in my world view if someone's bothering you you should just say something to them you don't have to be even nasty about it just say hey you kind of annoy me. Do you mind, uh, you know, not talking right now? And also I actually think many movies are worth talking back to. Like what's part of the fun of going to the movies is I like when the crowd sort of laughs together yeah. or a the movie, they say, no, don't go in there. Or if there's a particular egregious or offensive scene, the whole theater can boo. I mm-hmm. think that's cool. Like it's again dismantling the sort of fascist uh, reaction where the screen is as wholly, I mean, there's so many uh, metaphors you can, you can play with in cinema where people look, you know, we sit in the pews and we're listening to the gospel from the screen and we're worshiping of the directors and, and the actors or the, the deities who have perfect skin and athletic prowess and, you know, they'll never die because they're on the screen. And yeah. uh, I, I hate that. I think it's one of the great things about rock and punk culture So when you're at a show, you can talk back to the band. There's a lot of heckling is encouraged and it's not seen as a negative thing. It's sort of a fun, ritualistic aspect of it. Whereas I feel like people should be able to heckle on movies and plays and things like that. Uh, This is my own point of view, which is a a controversial one. Uh, Anytime I say that to people, there's, oh, I absolutely abhor when people talk in movies. And and I'm a filmmaker. I I think if someone wants to talk over my film, cool. I don't care. And, and, if, and if your girlfriend or uh, your grandma's texting you and it's really important, text them back, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, to me, it's a, it's a metaphor for how people act on the internet. Everyone's a cop. It, it was great in uh, 2020 when everyone was protesting the egregious acts of the NYPD. But while doing so, they were policing each other. This is the right mm-hmm. way to protest. This isn't the right way to protest. And I think shame is is productive in many ways, and, and there is positive policing. I mean, that's how you raise a child. But this there, it has to be done intelligently, and it can't be done in this this sort of herd mentality kind of way. So, yeah, it, if anything, that's the sort of the the, the work with the finger. There's there's one aspect in that it relates to the counterintelligence role play. What we tried to do um, <laughs> is make the music sort of the guitar riffs sound like spy music, like Mission Impossible or James. Yeah, Bond. yeah, yeah sort of play with this idea of thinking every citizen is, is a spy working for the government in a way um, or working for the corporations that have hired them. Uh, I changed the title away from cops at Alma draft house. Cause I didn't want anyone to think I was like dissing that particular chain.
2: Yeah. I go to Alma
1: draft house. It's a great movie theater yeah i didn't want to make it uh i didn't want to you know it's a it's a, it's a much broader
0: issue <laughs> okay well we haven't got it over here in the uk but i am up for <laughs> we just have popcorn and sweets that's very british and it's very tunnel vision <laughs> no one no one talks um and yeah we do have a lot of warnings about people talking but i was yeah. listening to a podcast actually the day with these two um like film critics and they're saying their favorite thing is after the film having that conversation and like debriefing each other on the film, what did you think? And um yeah, yeah, I think maybe there isn't enough conversation. I know because we kind of limit it once we're in the in the cinema here, but at the same time, there seems to be a nice conversation to be had about a film.
1: Yeah, it's it's more like a it's more a metaphor. It's like Mm. I'm not saying to talk to the whole film. I'm saying just don't don't treat it as don't put it on a pedestal, you know.
0: Yeah. But we need burgers and and stuff like that with the film. That would make it amazing. number seven pillar on the bridge of you um which is that this is the first love song you've ever written
1: yeah well no i've written love songs before like pre-bodega but this is the first one uh written specifically to nikki and i think it's the first one that's been on a bodega album i mean you could make an argument that truth is not punishment is a love song or something like that, but not really
0: how was it writing this one obviously and then like showing it to nikki
1: it's funny, as I showed it to her, and she goes, "I don't get it." Oh, <laughs> she goes, "It's too abstract. What are you talking about?" I, <laughs> I go, "Yeah, hey, I, I love you." <laughs> <laughs> Did she say
0: uh, that? That's brilliant. She eventually came to
1: like it, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. To me, it's like this. Uh, I was thinking about what really makes a relationship work, and to me, it, it has to do with a shared interests. Not like we like the same movies or whatever. We we have the same life goals. We have the same—I hesitate to use the word lifestyle, but I think it is sort of apt. We see the world in relatively similar ways, and we can we can help each other fulfill our goals. This is why I think in romantic comedies, when there's you know when Tom Cruise says you complete me, I actually think that's sort of apt and uh, beautiful in that way. It's like you've literally made me a better person. I wouldn't have been able to be the kind of person I am today without you. There's also a sort of erotic aspect to it of there is a masochism in romance. When you first fall in love with somebody, you'll completely subsume your identity into theirs. And and, uh, I'm speaking from my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. And you'll do anything that let them walk all over you. And not in a negative way, but they're paramount in your consciousness at that point. This is actually another Heidegger thing. He has this essay about bridges. Uh, which is very beautiful. So I was just thinking a lot, a lot about bridges and how uh, I, it's pretty obvious the metaphor. I want to be holding holding Nikki up. I want you know I want to help her achieve the goal. She's the the U-Haul car going over to uh, far off destinations, and, and I'm I'm holding her up. There's also you know you can play sort of games as well and think about what a pillar is. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The hand gesture was great to go with that. Well, I'm going to try and smoothly transition into the eighth song, um, How Can I Help You?, which has been getting a lot of radio play over here in the UK. Like some of the big radio stations, rightly so, have been playing it lots. How did this song take shape?
1: It was a the last song I wrote for the record. So uh, we had recorded 20 initially. And, and all the ones that we cut, by the way, are coming out um, this later this summer on oh, a disc cool. called Extra Equipment, which is like, yeah the songs, not, they they didn't get cut because they're bad songs. I love them, but they got cut because they just didn't fit. They didn't play nice together, you know? So How Can I Help You was one in which, uh, I don't know, when I listened to the whole record, I thought we're missing this certain kind of tone. I wanted more pop rock songs kind of in the vein of statuette on the console or pillar, songs that kind of are in that world. I was listening a lot to Bob Dylan's a gospel trilogy. Oh, you know? I'm you know not.
0: No, obviously I love Bob Dylan, but no, I'm not um aware of that one.
1: Yeah, this is like most people know, or at least familiar, with the idea. Like in the late '70s, he became a Christian and and renounced the rest of his catalog and said, "I'm only playing Christian music from now on." Oh, wow! And he made this record called Slow Train, which is amazing. One called Saved, and one called Loaded. And then after that, he's like, "All right, I'm done," and he went back to playing his old songs again. <laughs> <laughs> uh but the first record in particular is amazing i love it so much um and i'm in no ways a christian but i think uh sort of like the old testament fire and brimstone brought out his best aspect of his of his songwriting like he's always been sort of a a really good pointing the finger at people kind of person but he speaks really uh, eloquently, and there's a song, I forget what it's called, Oh, What, what Can I Do For You is what it's called. Right. And he's, he's singing to God, but he's basically saying, you've done all these great things for me, what can I do for you? I thought, well, that's a beautiful gesture. Uh, my secularized version became, how can I help you? Yeah. And I'm not talking to God, I'm just talking to my fellow man. I guess like when you make a lot of art, you're in your own head a lot, especially when you're making sort of a concept record about the nuances of your personality. To me, it's one of the rare moments where our band actually, instead of being sort of critical of something, we actually have a sort of somewhat positive message. Yeah, wicked. Helping people is the best thing you can do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) wicked. And why do you think, obviously, in particular in the UK, that song has got really big and nice, they got a lot of airtime. Why do you think that song in particular, obviously, the whole album's got great attraction?
1: Yeah. Well, it's catchy. It's the one song where I was using the Beatles as sort of a playbook. I don't know if you know oh, their song, cool. I can find, but yes, how's that? rip oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. How can I help you? Oh. It's very similar, so it's sort of a it's not a lift per se because it's not at all the same. But no, you know, guitar players know that when you. I guess no one's watching this, but when you make the power the bar chord shape, guitar players will know what I mean. Where you barring with your index finger. And what you can do with your pinky is sort of play melodies while still holding that bar. And that's, I think, how John Lennon came up with that riff. So I did the same thing accidentally, and then the lyrics sort of followed that. And, uh, and you know, I actually tried to follow sort of like the classic Beatles playbook, where you have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, a, an outro that's different from the, uh, the intro. It's very class- classical 60s pop song. Which is probably why it's catchy. (laughs) That's that's
0: really cool to know about the Beatles' influence. I love that. Number nine, No Blade of Grass, which I think yours and Nikki's vocals just really complement each other particularly well on, on this one. Um, what was the inspiration behind, yeah, num- uh, number nine?
1: Um, this guy, when we were on tour, he gave me a book of uh, an encyclopedia. He, he did this himself. It was a DIY encyclopedia of 70s disaster movies. He said, oh, I know you're uh, a film guy, so I think you'll appreciate this. It is pretty cool. I'm not really into disaster movies per se, although our name comes from Bodega Bay, which is the city in which the Birds uh, Hitchcock's The Birds take place, which is by far the best disaster movie, probably. Um, and I think he knew that, so he's like, "Oh, you must like disaster movies." <laughs> um, and I was just, I, but I was, you know, in between working on songs, I would sort of thumb through it and read different entries, and I read, came across the There's a film called No Blade of Grass which is post-apocalyptic
2: kind of thing. Oh. I still
1: have yet to see the film, but that title itself is so enigmatic. And, and I think the opening line, every every single trailer for a, a film I've seen this week rem- reminds us the end of the world. There was a time where every trailer I was seeing in the cinema was like end of the world movies. I think this, this happens in like 10-year chunks. In the 90s, we had the Volcano movie and Twister and Independence Day and all these things. And I, there were some ones 10 years later like 2012 or whatever uh, there's a lot of ones whose names i'm forgetting and it's i guess our our, our pop consciousness is sort of like dealing with uh the, the fact that we know that, that we're destroying this planet you know it's probably the most overtly political song on the record in that it's very clear that uh like this is howard zinn's idea where the powers that be the the one percent are always going to try to create discord between everybody else to control them. And one of the ways to do that is to get people really, really scared and feel like they need Big Daddy to take care of them. So it's in the powers that be's best interest to start wars, for example. It always is that way because war is very profitable and it keeps uh it, it gets rid of all other uh social issues. Oh, we don't need socialism because we're going to war right now. We'll deal with that later, you know. Like I think like going back to Howard Zinn when you read like people's history of the united states he does a very good job of showing how that happens every 10 years in different ways like a different sort of big distraction comes up so i guess that, yeah that, that's sort of the the key idea of the song wow. i was also uh in the second half of the song i realized a lot of people were using uh like all these youtube pundits that people were sending me were you sort of sort of justifying social inequality through the sort of like social Darwinism people people always try to do that but say look it's only natural that things are there's inequality because there's inequality in nature so of course you know this is just the way it is deal with it well I'm always skeptical of any sort of naturalistic idea naturalism is not natural just because something is or appears to be that way I mean anytime anyone uses that you know an argument from naturalism trying to pull the wool over your eyes musically that song uh mm-hmm. achieves maybe better than any other song in the album the synthesis between all the different styles that our band does it has rap sections it has like, dance sections and it has big sort of beatley melodic choruses uh it has, a, it has a great guitar solo by uh dan ryan and uh, it, yeah it's, you, know, you can dance to it you can sing to it it's sort of very critical but it's also silly as well i think yeah if i could like show one person like what our band does right now that might be the best yeah thing. maybe not the best one but it combines everything mm-hmm.
0: you know, right? yeah all the different elements that kind of a broken equipment and as an album like I said you guys is a band No Uh, that leads on really well to the 10th song on the album all past lovers and i read that you said that tone is often the hardest thing to get right with a song um how did you find achieving that on this song
1: this one is the one i rewrote the most the lyrics were almost always the same but it was this was like a very y one like a it's like a folk song where and there was many many verses where i was there's way more than four where i was just kind of going through and sort of You know, the song kind of writes itself once you get that good idea where each verse is going to be about a different uh, lover in your life. And then you can always come back to that refrain, all past lovers live inside of you. That's why I think Dylan writes so many songs, because once he gets his little formula, it's so easy to just plug in poetry into that formula. Uh, Formal constraints are so good for creativity. But once I wrote the song that I knew was really special to me, at least. It was hard to like translate it in a way that would be fun to a band. It, I didn't want to just play like a dirge like folk song. We tried it many different ways. Try to play it really fast, like a punk song. Let's try to really slow it down, make it like a Velvet Underground-y drone kind of thing. There's many different permutations of it. And it was eventually one day that I was messing around with alternate tuning. I had this guitar in this bizarre open tuning. I was, I was learning uh, some Sonic Youth covers just for fun. And I was able to like come up with that riff. I was able to sing the that big major key melody over, and you sort of could get uh, the sort of euphoric classic rock feeling, but it didn't feel obvious because the the music was uh, that riff. I don't know the way it was droning on, kind of gave me a cool feeling. We're playing with sort of like Americana tropes in the song, like the train coming around the bend. There be going, it's like a chug it took a train coming around, and. You know the bass is kind of playing almost like a stock blues kind of progression. Um, so yeah, it's like what I said at the beginning of our chat of like trying to take traditional forms but update them. And uh, I think you know we finally hit on something that works. I know with songwriting to me, uh, whenever I have like frustrations with collaborators, it's because I'm unable to articulate what I'm looking for, and it's because I don't know what I'm looking for. I'm a process artist, I guess. So i might go through like 10 versions of a song and, and I'm like, well what do you want tell me what you want we'll play it that way i'm like i don't know i'll know it when i hear it
0: you know? oh wow okay cool
1: yeah and when when we heard it it's like okay we got it you know yeah especially when dan started playing those those leads over it's like okay this is it mm-hmm.
0: yeah such a good song And the penultimate song on the album, Seneca the Stoic, again, real great balance of spoken words with the melody. Um, what are some of the influences behind this one?
1: Uh, I wanted to do something a little bit more proggy, for lack of a better word. It had um, many different sections. It wasn't just going to be like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, or whatever. So I was actually really... Uh, do you know uh, Kevin Barnes from of Montreal? No. Um,
0: Bonds, okay.
1: Yeah, I, I've actually brought him up so many times to people in England that we don't know who that is. He's yeah, he might only be big in America. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'll wow. take note.
1: You no, know, he was in like the whole like Elephant Six collective thing in the '90s, but then went on to do more like funky music in, oh, cool. in the aughts or whatever. But uh, I follow his Patreon. He, he does a really good Patreon where he breaks down his songwriting. It's really really neat. He ha- he'll actually do like a screen capture and he'll pull up his sessions in uh, the software that he uses and he'll show you all his tracks and he'll tell you exactly how he makes a song. He'll tell you exactly how he wrote a song.
0: Oh wow.
1: Uh, it's sort of really educational and really fun if you're a fan of his. And I was watching one of his and he said, well, I had three really good songs, but they're only like a minute long. And I just smashed them all together. And then in order to connect them, because they were in different tempos and keys, he wrote like these little segs, little, like 15 second segs. So what you end up with is a six-part sort of prog rock behemoth of a song. But every part is has enough integrity to stand on its own. It doesn't feel random. It's, and there's so many hooks and so much pop sensibility in that. And I was like, wow, that's such a great strategy. So I had three separate songs for Seneca, one called Fire Hydrant, one called Waste to Feel Bliss, and I forget what the other one was called. But, oh, cool. And then I, I kind of played that same game. But then, funny enough – uh, we recorded that super proggy version, which was like eight minutes long and had like a super long guitar solo in and stuff uh, and didn't really have much logic to it. And almost everyone I played it to was like, there's some really catchy stuff in here and emotional hole uh, here, but I don't really, you know, it doesn't really do a whole lot for me. You should probably cut the song for the album. And I was like, no. So we went back and reworked it and actually made it a much more conventional song. Now it has that first chorus, first chorus. But then it has, you know, it goes on and it has like two whole new sections near the end. So I sort of like applied, I guess, what well, you call Beatle Tricks and refined the best hook ideas and, you know, came up with like a three, four minute song out of it. Um, it's also one of the first times I've really explicitly tried to write in the minor key, but I didn't, I didn't want it to be dirge-like, like make a really euphoric song that's in the minor key. Uh, obviously like a lot of our songs are in the minor key, but only because they're like tangentially uh, just playing the, the stock minor third flat seven punk chords, you know, not, but not like not having the vocals hit the flat six kind of thing. You know what I mean? Sorry to talk. I mean, for people like theory, they'll like that, but uninteresting.
0: No, yeah. Interesting. Um,
1: yeah. So it actually went through like a super long process to become much more simpler than it was, but I, I do like it a lot more now. It's mm. way more fun to listen to. And the emotion of it, I think, comes through a lot more. Seneca is, of course, the name of the Roman philosopher, but it's also the street, a street like two blocks away where our uh, our coffee shop is here. Uh. So every morning it's funny to be, you know, see Seneca and be immediately reminded of um, the guy.
0: <laughs> cool. Oh, wow. So you're even influenced by just street names. I mean, there's so many different influences that we've spoken about. Yeah. Street names is one of them. And then the final song on the album, the wonderful After Jane, um, which like you said, is a, a note to your mum. And it yeah. really stands out as such an, an acoustic gem on the album. How was it bringing this song together? Because it's, it's a very personal one.
1: Yeah, it was, it was maybe the most difficult in a lot of ways. Not like the most difficult to come up with musically, but the most difficult uh, emotionally for sure. I guess it's been uh, the hardest uh, issue of my life really is coming to terms with my sort of like in many ways wonderful but in many ways troubled relationship with my mom and she passed away in 2017 and ever since then i've been trying to process it and make art about it in various ways like i made a movie called private chat and even though it's about a guy who falls in love with a cam girl in many ways i feel like to me there's a lot of, of my mom in it which might seem weird uh from the outside but yeah, so uh, I had written many, many different versions of the song. And then I wrote a totally separate song called Hindsight, which is you know, more or less what it sounds like, where further from events, uh, things come into clarity. And I guess I had enough distance from things on my mom that I could finally actually integrate. So I integrated this sort of country song. <laughs> it's like a very like, uh, the more I live, uh, the more I do wrong, the easier and harder it is to sing my song. You can say this it could almost be like a Hank Williams song or something yeah. like that. Then I integrated that into uh, this narrative about my mom. And the hardest thing was actually uh, just deciding to put it on the record. It came together pretty fast. And But then I, I was going to cut it because I started to have some guilt of whether uh, releasing it wouldn't be in some ways like tarnishing my mom's reputation or something like that. I don't know, you just feel guilty about saying anything ill of the dead. Uh, and that's not really what the song does anyway, but I was I was super paranoid, I guess. And the Nikki kind of gave me the courage and said, no, it's really beautiful. And yeah. I think a lot of people who've been through something similar will relate to it. So you should yeah. put it out. Yeah,
0: yeah and I love the lyrics at the end. I'm channeling your heart when I sing my songs, which I think is such a, such a beautiful line. Uh, does it end, or I kind of heard the end of like, the waves, ocean. Yeah. Is- is that a sound that you recorded or um, picked up yourself?
1: Yeah, well, there's a lake in Iowa called Lake Okoboji. It's on the very northwest corner of the state, and that's where we used to have our I, – I grew up, like, in the Midwest and, and then the south, but we used to always go just yeah, – I guess it was only probably, like, six or seven years of my life, but we always went there yeah. at the family uh, Union. It's kind of like the Coney – it's like Brighton or Coney Island of the Midwest mm-hmm. of America. There's, like, a little wooden roller coaster on the lake and that kind of thing. And that is where I went to uh, spread her ashes over Lake Okeechobee. So mm. to me, uh, yeah, it was like it felt like a fitting in. You know, th- there was like an aquatic theme to the record. Like New York City emerges from the waters right there in mm. the Hudson Bay, and uh, you know the you know it's a port city. Pillar on the bridge of you is uh, you know the bridge is going over a body of water. Mm. It was a much more aquatic theme to all the lyrics that had maybe been uh, submerged a little bit, but
0: love it. Well, it's yeah, just such a beautiful song and um, such beautiful lyrics as well. Oh, and I saw that if people were to buy a CD, they would get a bonus track. So I would the end. They get, is it uh, Memorize Your Heart? Memorize With with Your Heart. heart. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So people need to buy the CD and then they can find out more about that song as well.
1: Yeah. Well, that one's also going to be on the, uh, the,
0: that we put out later, right? So, yeah. Got you, got you, got it.
2: Lately, I've been thinking about you alone in that Tampa apartment, shaken by the TV, said alone with no friends in your apartment. I think that's why I made a point out. That-
0: um, so I'd just do a couple of like final games towards the end of the podcast. So just some kind of quick fire questions. Again, a lot of this we've kind of covered. Um, yeah. Which song came together the quickest and which took the longest off the album?
1: Uh, definitely longest, Seneca, I guess. Either that or All Pass Lovers. The quickest would have been "How Can I Help You?" And we did because we were under the gun too. It was like we were going back in the studio to do some final mixing, and then I got really excited and said oh, we can do a whole new song and we'll, we'll record it and mix it all in the same day and like do it really fast. And, you know, so I had like two weeks to teach it to the band and write it, basically. Deadlines are great for creativity. So it came, I mean, I wrote it all in on one day. But then
0: Wow. It week. Um, do you have a favourite song off the album?
1: Uh, it changes. There's like ones I like for like how their are mixes or how mm-hmm. they are. I think How Can I Help You is probably my favourite in terms of... Um, how the lyrics and the melody play together. I think just like if I was to sit down with an acoustic guitar and play all the songs, that would be the one that would give me the most joy.
0: Do you have a favorite lyric or favorite uh, songs with different you know, lyrics off them? I know I've quoted a few.
1: Yeah, Throne definitely has my favorite lyrics. Nice. So, yeah. Nice.
0: Um which have you most enjoyed playing live if you've managed to play a lot of them live?
1: Uh No Blade of Grass is definitely Ooh. my favorite to play live. Just cause it has We've extended it quite a bit. and It becomes as big, long... We play it like twice as fast, too. It, just, it becomes uh, really euphoric.
0: Great. So final game. This is called What's the Occasion? And I give you three different occasions and you've got to pick three different songs off the album that if you had to play at that occasion, would be that song. So you've got a okay. wedding, a dinner oh. party, or a car road trip. Wow. Oh, crap. So oh, wedding. Yeah, it could be... Just like, well, it could be a first dance. Or it could be everyone getting up and dancing.
1: Uh, I guess I will play Pillar at the wedding. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Nice.
1: yeah. Uh, um, the car trip. And what was the second
0: one? A Dinner party. So it's kind dinner of like party. talking piece. I feel like mm-hmm. quite a lot of songs yeah. are really good dinner party songs, actually. Yeah, like background music kind of? Yeah. Yeah, something that you can like kind of unpick a bit or talk about the lyrics behind New York it. York
1: would probably get a lot of people uh, yeah. But it's also mellow enough. I think you could have it on in the background if you're all enjoying a nice glass of wine together.
0: <laughs> exactly. I, mean, I, mean, is- <laughs> I feel like we're worse really with that, though,
1: because we have nonstop lyrics. We're not like a very, like, mellow. Man,
0: you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a great shout. And yeah. um, car road trip.
1: Uh, doors. Ooh. Put it in the, especially if you have a good system in your car, like bump that bass.
0: Yeah, bump that bass. Thank you so much. What have you got coming up future-wise?
1: We're about to do like a two-month tour in America. Uh, We're doing some dates with the band Spoon, which we're excited about. But I guess since everyone listening to this is probably in England, we're coming back to England in the fall. Great. Uh, We're going to do like just two weeks of shows. Um, And we have this EP coming up called Extra Equipment, which is – all the B sides and unreleased songs and some covers that were from the same sessions as um as broken
0: equipment love it. I'm very excited about that one. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I feel like you should have you ever thought about writing a book or I know you're obviously writing lyrics and things like that, but I feel like you should yeah I'm just going to put out some of your words. I feel like I should be jotting them down as you speak
1: wow well that's that's a great compliment. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll get
0: around to that. Yeah. I mean, not that you haven't done enough. Obviously, you've done a film. <laughs> you're obviously a musician. So just to throw it out there now, I'm putting pressure on you to write a book. So. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you so much, Ben. It's been lovely to meet you. And um, yeah, congrats. And it must be super, super proud.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the record as deeply as you did.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of LP Uncovered. If you like this one, you can go back and listen to all my previous episodes featuring lots of wonderful musicians. Just head along to wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts and subscribe away. Likewise, you can follow LP Uncovered on Instagram to keep up to date with upcoming episodes.